Hello and welcome back to the Wild Brood Podcast. I am your host, Phoebe Crottinger. When you think of a salmon advocate, who comes to mind? For me, that person is Kendra Nelson. Hello, I am Kendra Nelson. I have a background in marine science and I am a content creator on social media, sharing uh, marine science and conservation educational content online with people, ways people can advocate for conservation efforts, and yeah, just general ocean, generally ocean science education, but we're getting into some fresh water recently. I also work for the Rivershed Society of BC, and I am a board member for Orca Conservancy, which is a Southern Resident Killer Whale Conservation Organization. I have followed her on Instagram for a good year and a half, and I am constantly inspired by her salmon and orca advocacy. Her passion, knowledge, and warmth make her an incredible asset and advocate for these unique, scaly creatures. On today's episode, we marry land and sea, and it is my greatest hope, especially if you are a landlocked mermaid like myself, that you understand why we cannot separate the two. Kendra has graciously extended her time today to talk about the ocean salmon, their life cycle, their protections, their threats, and what we can do to honor these sacred creatures. Let's dive in. In my opinion, probably one of the most qualified people to talk on the topic, especially if you follow her on Instagram. Uh, What is your handle so that those listening can check out your content? Yeah, Instagram and TikTok, I am intertidal Kendi, which was born from my love for the intertidal zone (laughs) and tide pooling. Heck yes. That was my first intro to the ocean as well, was uh, anemones and tide pools off the Oregon coast. It always starts there. (laughs) Awesome. Well, first of all, thank you so much for joining me today. I love, one, all of your content, and two, I love your focus, which is salmon and orca and land and basically the entire picture of what's going on in the Puget Sound. And this focus of this podcast series so far has been inland salmon, but you can't talk about inland salmon unless you talk about ocean salmon and the broader picture that ocean salmon paint in the ocean. So let's start with just salmon. Let's not talk about what's what's going on, what's doing it. I focus, like I said, on the inland salmon, but they spend most of their life in the deep for like one to four years. What on earth are they doing out there? Yeah, so what salmon are doing in the high seas, uh, we have some ideas. We know their spatial distribution, for example. We know what they're eating, but in terms of behavior and all that fun stuff, we don't know a ton because it's kind of hard to keep track of fish in the open ocean. Mm-hmm. But we you know, we know a couple things. Uh, and a big part of a salmon's life in the ocean is their start into the ocean. So each salmon species spends a certain amount of time in fresh water as smolts or par uh, or fry. And chum and pink salmon are like the quickest to get into the ocean from when they have hatched and grown a little bit in fresh water. Whereas other species, the coho, chinook, sockeye, they they spend a bit more time in fresh water. Sockeye can be in fresh water for a couple years in lakes. Uh, coho can also be in freshwater for up to two years as they hide in tributaries. Uh, and then Chinook can be anywhere between three months and a year. And when they make their way to the ocean, they tend to hang out in estuary and coastal habitats still for a little bit as their bodies acclimate to the change from freshwater to saltwater. And then eventually, when they're in their post-smolt phase, they will go out to the open ocean where they will then be feeding and finding food and growing and the post-smolt phase is actually the has the highest percentage of mortality for salmon in their salmon life cycle, besides when they spawn and die. Um, 
I think it's between 50 to 90% of post molts will die before they start to grow. So they lose a lot of them get lost because they get eaten. They're little Mm -hmm. uh, other fish want to eat them. Birds will come down and eat them. So as they grow, they, their mortality rates drop significantly because birds can't get them as easily. And you know, you're, you're a lot harder to catch when you're bigger Yeah. In, yeah. in this, in this, in this circumstance. So yeah, they're out there, they're feeding, they're eating. We do know that they'll go out into the open ocean and the populations, at least here. So the North Pacific Northwest, they will go out and they'll mingle with the salmon that are coming from Asia. And I assume from Russia as well, because mm-hmm. they all have substantial salmon populations as well. So they all just kind of go out. They'll be in the same area, but after they're there for one to sometimes eight years, five is usually the average, but I think Chinook can stay in the ocean for like seven to eight years. Wow. Uh, I, I know. They're all so different. It's so <laughs> they fun. are so different. Um, and then they'll make their way back to their home river, their natal rivers. Okay. So you are a science person. Yes. How do they know to get back to their home rivers? Yes. There are many different like ideas and ways. Um, one thing is, of course, like, is it magnetic fields? Is it ascent? Is it like moon cycles? Like I've heard a lot of different theories to my understanding. There isn't one way that's known for sure. Mm-hmm. I hear a lot of people talking about the scent and the magnetic fields and that just something triggers it and they go home. This is going to be a really dumb question, but I went and visited the sockeye salmon hatchery here in uh, Southern Idaho and their, their fish don't turn pink at all. And I know it's a diet thing. So what are they eating in the open ocean that they're not eating in hatcheries? Yes, you mean like this, the the meat doesn't turn pink? So um, the eggs, the hatchery eggs, oh, are, gotcha. they're not pink um, when they start because the, the brood stock that they have at the sockeye hatchery and eagle, they, when, they, when they get ready to spawn, they don't really turn pink. They kind of do, but not like the vibrant red that sockeye are known for. And I know like the feed that they have there is a, I think it's chicken meal based or it's mm-hmm. when I asked, you know, what do they eat in the wild? That's different than here. They, the, the tech wasn't quite sure. So what are they eating? So it depends on the species in terms of diet. They all will eat plankton and like mm-hmm. bugs, zooplankton for the most part. So they'll be feeding on like, you know, your tinafores, your amphipods, uh, small larvae of other like fish species. Um, and then as they get bigger, Chum, for example, really like, pretty sure it's chum. Chum will eat jellyfish. Like, they're one of the few that actually just will snack on jellyfish. That's weird. Um, Chinook will eat the bigger species. So, Chinook, chum, and coho, they'll eat even other fish um, and squids. Whereas smaller species like your sockeye and pink salmon are going to just kind of stick with their plankton. Mm -hmm. Fun little situation with zubitsu plankton. So, yeah, it depends on the species. And that's also why, like, meat color varies even with like amongst wild salmon, they all mm-hmm. won't have the exact same color of meat because it depends what they were able to eat while they were out in the ocean and before they fatten themselves up mm-hmm. to get ready to be caught. <laughs> yeah. When you're buying like a wild caught salmon in the grocery store, what species is that usually? Sockeye is the most sought after mm-hmm. and most commercially available uh, Pacific salmon species that's eaten. Chinook or king salmon. They're also called king salmon. They also might be called Taiyi salmon. They're another really popular one. There's especially, I think it's the Copper River in Alaska is like the most expensive Chinook salmon that you can buy. They're highly sought after. I forget why. I think people just like the taste of that Chinook population <laughs> more than some other ones. Okay. 
Okay. It's like fish sommeliers, which is yeah. weird, but okay. So what is it about this specific salmon that causes people to open their wallets and happily pay $120 per pound? Which, if you need a reference point, the average price for salmon in the U.S. per pound is about $2.34, $2.68, depending. Well, according to the Alaska Salmon Company, the Copper River Salmon, specifically the Copper River King Salmon, has gotten the title of the Wagyu of seafood and the King of King Salmons because of its succulent and buttery texture from their natural yet wild genetics. So if you need to impress somebody, this is probably the salmon for you. Yeah, so those those two are the biggest. I think pink is the least common that's commercially, and that's commercially. If you are like kind of going local mm-hmm. or fishing yourself, most people just get the fish, catch their salmon, and eat their salmon. Yeah. But sockeye and chinook are usually the two that you're seeing a lot in grocery stores. Interesting. And I this is kind of like in the second category, but sockeye and certain chinook have like the Endangered Species Act protections. I, I know it's inland, but does that ex- uh, extend to ocean traveling salmon? Or is it like, oopsie, we caught it. I guess we're eating it. Like, is there a bycatch laws? Do you know? Yeah, so when they're in the open, so when they're in the high seas, Mm -hmm. which is out of the EEZ zone, Mm -hmm. there is a rule about not catching salmon out in from, I think, the US and Canada. Mm -hmm. I know for sure Canada, um, which I'm in British Columbia. They can't catch from the high seas. So usually when people are catching salmon, it is when they're in the coastal waters. So, or in the the mouths of the rivers that they're migrating up to. So there are some rules. There actually was an interesting article that came out two weeks ago from this journal here in Canada mm-hmm. called the Narwhal. And it was actually talking about and raising awareness of the situation mm-hmm. that Canada is less likely to protect species that are at risk when they are commercially valuable, specifically about fish. Interesting. And so for British Columbia, the salmon populations are st- are designated by their population. So there's like Got the it. lower the lower Fraser population, there's Adams River, there's there's tons of different populations depending on the river and within that one river mm-hmm. if there's tributaries. And some of those populations are designated as at risk or threatened. Others are not. And so it kind of gets into this gray murky area on how do you protect that population when they all kind of come in at the same time. That separation of population like designation under mm-hmm. the Species at Risk Act makes it really difficult to when it comes to fishing mm-hmm. to be like, oh, well, we don't want to fish this this one run, but they all come in at the same time and we don't really have a way to distinguish. Right. So they just don't put any of them. None of them. There are three species of 48 populations of um, salmon and trout here in BC. Mm-hmm. And only three are designated under the official SARA Act, which is the Species at Risk Act. And those are all trout species, which aren't commercially the most sought after so it's not like the same situation like putting them on a designation is very different from if they put on the fraser river sockeye just all fraser river sockeye Got it. or another river's significant salmon population that type of thing there is this thing that they know that they're they're declining we know mm-hmm. every year i mean some of the runs from like 2019 and 2020 were like really bad really low right all over yeah but they still fish them. They'll have closures mm-hmm. and fisheries will close or put in different time limitations, but there's still fishing going on. Let's say you have the Fraser River sockeye and then you have like the Red Lake sockeye here in Idaho. They all go out to the ocean. All the sockeye fishing goes on in the ocean. You go to Costco, you see a bag labeled sockeye. 
can some of them accidentally be like technically an endangered sockeye? Yes, and that's actually a fun thing. That's not fun, but it's a <laughs> it's a fun thing being looked at with Chinook salmon and the Alaskan fishery here in BC, mm-hmm. and that's mostly being done by Watershed Watch Salmon Society, which is an organization here in BC. But they are actually looking into this issue of Alaskan fishermen coming with um, outside of BC waters and fishing what they are saying are. And I believe there's been genetic analysis done to show that it is Fraser River Chinook salmon that are being fished and sold in Alaska as Alaskan salmon, and they are not Alaskan. After recording, Kendra sent me a quick clarification. She says, quote, I specifically said Fraser salmon, but most reports are generalized to Canadian salmon, Chinook and sockeye. According to the Watershed Watch, based on genetic data from previous years, Watershed Watch President Aaron Hill estimates up to 75% of approximately 800,000 sockeye salmon caught in southeast Alaska in 2021 were bound for British Columbia's North Coast rivers. So that is a way that that could be done is through genetic analysis. You can tell where some of these salmon are coming from. Fraser Mm -hmm. River Chinook have a different genetic makeup than the Copper River salmon, than another River Chinook, Snake River Chinook, that kind of stuff. So they're doing an ongoing project, I believe. Oh, there's actually news about it recently where a bigger organization is also calling it out and actually mm-hmm. recommending Alaskan fisheries to shut. I don't know if it was shut down, but get a lot stricter. Yeah. Or just not fish in BC waters. Yeah. Um, so that like it, it's ongoing. Watershed mm-hmm. Watch is the best way to stay updated if this is intriguing to anyone. Oh, it's definitely intriguing to me because I'm sitting here going like, OK, you know, fisherman brings in a giant catch. Like, how are they, like, by the time you genetically test a fish, like, that fish is so stressed out, it's probably going to die. So now you have to start looking at perhaps marine protected areas, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting right now within BC that's Alaska, I mean, not Alaska. (laughs) Uh, Watershed Watch has its eye on it. Uh, And so if you want to follow, do that. This is going to be an ongoing fisheries issue. On top mm-hmm. of the fact that there's other fisheries issues, yeah. and that now it, and that now it could get between countries that it's the U.S. and BC and not BC. BC is not a country. Mm-hmm. Canada having this conflicting fishery thing. Like, I mean, if yeah. th- that is a big issue, the Fraser River is a big deal in BC. The Fraser mm-hmm. River is the biggest salmon producing river in Canada, mm-hmm. and it's one of the biggest salmon producing rivers in the world behind mm-hmm. the ones in Alaska. So if this is happening and there's more and more proof about it, it could become a serious issue because this is how countries are making money with mm-hmm. salmon, mm-hmm. not just from selling it, but from tourism and from local fisheries and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So this could get bigger mm-hmm. as it kind of gets illuminated a bit more. No, I don't think it'd be like huge national news, but. Well, that's a good segue into issues with ocean salmon. And since we were talking about protections to ocean-based salmon. I want to also talk about commercial salmon farms in that area. And are they being, ocean salmon, are they being affected by these uh, commercial salmon farms? Because I think Canada has more than the U.S. Or like in the Puget Canada State. has them. The yeah, U.S. doesn't really say. have any. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, Canada in B.C. specifically, and I'm pretty sure there's salmon farms in Nova Scotia, but that's mm-hmm. not my problem. I don't <laughs> live there. It's way over there. <laughs> um, but here in B.C., yes, there are salmon farms off of the Vancouver Island and the other islands up Mm -hmm. the coast i haven't seen any of them myself but we do have salmon farms and there it's like a whole bucket of worms salmon Mm -hmm. farms and like on one hand from an objective point the world eats so much salmon we do need to have another way to make salmon to Mm -hmm. feed the demand that isn't 
completely exploiting the wild population because if we cut out all salmon farming and we were only relying on salmon well one people should just probably not eat as much salmon but Mm -hmm. ignoring that part (laughs) of the equation if the demand was the same and they wanted to meet that demand if they got rid of salmon farms our wild populations would just be kaput because we would massively go at them so salmon farming is something that in that circumstance we would need Mm-hmm. The issue comes with open net salmon farming, which mm-hmm. is going on on the coast. And one of the big concerns that I think about for the most part is the effect it has on juvenile salmon. So as salmon are leaving freshwater to go into the ocean and they pass by these fish farms, fish farms are kind of known to have a lot of lice and there's issues with viruses and all that fun stuff that comes with animal agriculture, whether mm-hmm. it's on land or in the ocean and that they're open pen if there are lice, if there's a, a lice problem at one farm or one farm's treating for some illness or a salmon there has this illness, then it can pass on to the juveniles who are more susceptible to these things because their little bodies can't take it when there are so many lice popping and jumping on them. That's so weird. Fish lice. Ugh. <laughs> so <laughs> little isopods just oh, jumping on. I do love isopods, but just the, the, the mental image... So are the salmon farms, like I know in the U.S. we have the giant capos or the cattle lots and whatever, and they preemptively treat their cattle with like antibiotics and, you know, stuff like that. Are the open net salmon farms, do they also use like a preemptive approach? That's like, because I know adding antibiotics to environments preemptively comes with its own set of issues, but is that also a thing in Canada? I'm not sure if it's preemptive. I know that if there is an illness going on, that they have their like medi- medications essentially to treat the mm-hmm. fish there's some good books that talk about salmon farming in like more depth that again i'm not mm-hmm. i don't know everything about salmon farming i have a lot of friends that like work concerning mm-hmm. salmon farming and so i hear and like pick things up and obviously mm-hmm. if you follow the salmon issue in bc most people know about the salmon farms and like 70 percent right. of british Columbians don't like salmon farms that's so interesting that it's that high given that it's what i would imagine a pretty lucrative you know, boost to the coastal economy. It is. And that's the part of like, it's the, the issue of the conversation. And like, there is a nuance to it is it does create jobs. Mm -hmm. Like people do work on these salmon farms. One could argue that if we continue salmon farming, and if it is having this massive impact on wild salmon, then the jobs coming from wild salmon fishing will decline. And then if we're all dependent on salmon, like, you know, you can like run yourself in a circle. (laughs) Yeah, the catch 22 for basically any wild versus domestic stock of any animal is so frustrating. Yeah. And so if definitely if anyone wants to learn a lot more about salmon Mm -hmm. farming, Watershed Watch is an organization here in BC that's like big on fighting salmon farms, keeping and holding the government accountable for their promise to get rid of open salmon farms. Mm-hmm. Another organization is Clayoquit Sound, which is an organization on the island, and they actually will go and like post about things they see going on at salmon farms. So, a couple times in 2022, sea lions were stuck in the salmon farms, oh, no. Oh, having no. a nice little feast, and just like they couldn't get out, they got in and then they couldn't mm-hmm. get out, and so people were monitoring, like, all right, well, there's gorging themselves on salmon and there was a concern in the past salmon farms are allowed to shoot seals and sea lions if they Mm -hmm. get in or near the farms i'm not sure the current rules on that but that was a concern Mm -hmm. is that no one wanted them to get shot for you know being animals right that want a free meal yeah that takes very little effort to get (laughs) you gotta love seals they are the laziest most wonderful yeah and it was it was these big like stellar sea lions that were just like swimming in these it was like 
it's not funny like it's concerning yeah. but like it's... objectively it's kind of funny that like yeah. these sea lions were like woo <laughs> I know. since you're mentioning sea lions and seals I don't know if this is an issue in Canada I know it was an issue in the U.S. back in 2018 and 2019 mm-hmm. seals were being blamed for low salmon returns um, and many officials in the U.S. were calling for a seal cull and I was hoping that you can elaborate on this uh, which states wanted it did the cull happen? And was the outcry against these seals, was this politically or scientifically motivated? So in yeah, 2018 and 2019, uh, Washington State was debating having a seal cull law to help, <laughs> air quotes, help salmon populations. That caused a big uproar, especially from a lot of killer whale people, because mm-hmm. our bigs or transient populations of killer whales are doing amazing mm-hmm. because their prey, which are mammals, which would be mm-hmm. seals, the seals and sea lions, have rebounded mm-hmm. since they've been put under the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Right. And so culling them could have a negative impact on our bigs population, which no one wants. Mm-hmm. And in general, a lot of people have the issue of, okay, we're going to blame the animals when we are over-consuming our fish and we're the ones damaging their you know, they're spawning habitats that less are able to spawn and we're the ones doing all these things. So instead of maybe holding ourselves responsible, we're just going to kill a bunch of seals and sea lions. Interesting. So that was a big thing. And then in BC or in Canada as a whole, Mm -hmm. uh, there was a legislation put forward to be considered to reinstate a seal and sea lion coal on the coast to help salmon populations. There used to be a coal, I believe, in the 90s. And so there has been a historical precedent that this has happened in British mm-hmm. Columbia. They used to cull seals and sea lions. And I know that. That's interesting. I, yeah. I think with this specific legislation, I think mm-hmm. someone from Quebec had put it forward and other people from other provinces were in favor of it. And no one really spoke against it, but mm-hmm. the other people that weren't like fully for it were kind of vague about it, mm-hmm. which is, you know, concerning, but that's politics. Yeah. There is debate. There are obviously some scientists and people who do support coals, mm-hmm. and then there are people that don't. And there are right. First Nations as well that support sea lion coals because mm-hmm. seal and sea lion coals are a part of culture. Right. And then there are those that do not. So that's, again, it's another conversation where there are the two sides. Right. And there is um, there's an idea that, okay, well, these seals and sea lions are eating the salmon and there are so many more seals and sea lions now than there mm-hmm. were a decade ago. And that's why we have less salmon. Mm-hmm. You could actually look at there were less seals and sea lions because they used to be killed. Yeah. <laughs> and I, now they're not. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I know. I remember I remember uh, reading a bunch about uh, the California sea lions being put on the Endangered Species Act and then mm-hmm. their rebound. And now they're like, oh, no, we have an issue. And it's like, mm, but do we? It's, but, yeah, it's like, is it an issue or have they rebounded back to their carrying capacity and we don't like that carrying capacity? Yeah, yeah they're because, loud and they're stinky. and <laughs> Yeah, they're everywhere now. Yeah. Um, which again, it's like, that's the human issue is is we see them as a nuisance for what we want, whether it's enjoying the beach, whether it's getting our salmon, whatever that may be. And that seems to be a big part of it is that people are just finding another animal to blame right? instead of... The human animal. Taking, yeah, taking our own accountability. Like, okay, yeah. maybe maybe we're the ones fishing the salmon. Maybe it's not the seals and sea lions. Maugh that's us. Yeah. Oh, man. I want to talk a little bit about the Puget Sound. Since it's... I'm under the impression that we have a equally shared love of the area, even though we're two yes. different countries. It is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Yes. And I want to say one of the also the saddest places in the world. I was actually in the Puget Sound on Saturday, and I always make sure to stop by the water. And I feel like the water quality gets worse every year even with all the initiatives that are coming out of Seattle. And I know that that's, you know, 
further south than you. But the the biggest thing, um, and I know we're going to talk about this with the orcas, but I'm curious about it with ocean salmon. Um, the Puget Sound is wildly polluted now. There was a water quality study that came out that they found like hard drugs and chemo drugs, and they found a plethora of like horrible things. And when I was getting dry suit certified, we were off of Alki Beach, and it was dead. The only fish I saw along the coastline was like half rotting. Literally, I took a picture of it. It's terrible, just terrible. And so I went back and I, I looked at the recent Alki Beach water quality studies because it's a watershed that they're trying to restore. And the levels of fecal mat- material were so high. I'm like, oh gosh, I put my regulator in, in that water. So I'm curious, the Puget Sound area, which is has urban runoff and also high amounts of boat traffic, is that affecting salmon coming out and returning to? Is, is that a major issue? It's definitely an issue in terms of like major, uh, mm-hmm. the impact of like noise pollution on fish is still being actively studied. Mm-hmm. And there have been studies out here. We do know that noise impacts fish. It raises their, raises their stress level. They will respond to it as if it's a predator, which when they mm-hmm. do that repeatedly and constantly because the noise is forever, yeah, that obviously weighs on them and it adds stress to their body, which takes a lot of energy to respond mm-hmm. to the stress, to calm down. If they were in the middle of potentially foraging and that happens mm-hmm. and they stop foraging, that's losing their foraging opportunity, but also needing to forage more because they now exerted energy in their stress response. Mm-hmm. So definitely, yes noise has an impact we kind of know more so how it is with mammals Mm -hmm. so fish is still like a growing thing we're still fully people there are still tons of research being done on the impact of noise but it's not at a situation where we want to get more of it Mm -hmm. which is what's being proposed in bc and it's like stressful and then water pollution a huge issue i mean in Mm -hmm. here so last year in bc there was this huge flood in november Mm And um, I want to think last month, a study came out from the Raincoast uh, Organization, uh, Raincoast Restoration, I believe is, or Raincoast Conservation. It's one of those two. Mm-hmm. That organization did a study on the floodwaters in the Fraser Valley that came from that flood event. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, again, the hard drugs, they found like cocaine mm-hmm. yeah. in the water. And it was in November, which is a uh, the later end of a lot of Pacific spawning salmon mm-hmm. period, especially with chum and coho. Chum and coho kind of come in November. And I remember seeing videos of people like driving on the road that had water on it and there were salmon like going over the road trying to, because they were all lost. <laughs> oh no, People gosh. were like picking them up out of like flood fields and like, where do we put this fish? <laughs> put me down right now or I am never coming back here. And so they were salmon swimming all in it and these were... Mm-hmm spawning salmon and so there's a potential they laid eggs and eggs hatched with this kind of water Mm -hmm. um what is that gonna do Mm, we don't really know we do know that because this is so recent like we're gonna maybe we'll see in four years that the salmon come back and they're all hopped up on cocaine (laughs) that was my next question is like when do you see the effect of that flood so we'll see it in about depending on the species it'll be like four years four five years because the time periods of when they will be coming back that's the thing when like this year, huge droughts. Yeah. When it was just, it was bizarre. Yeah. The lack of rain that we had. Um, and like we went and went to the Adams River sockeye salmon run, which is like the biggest run in the Fraser River and one of the biggest sockeye salmon runs in the world, mm-hmm. besides Bristol Bay in Alaska. Yeah. Adams River is like a second or third, I believe, to the Bristol Bay run and, and the Yukon run. Great runs. 
we went to that and we went the first weekend of October mm-hmm. and it was the festival was going to run the whole month because mm-hmm. this was a dominant year for Sockeye Salmon 2022. And so they were, they had expectations. I believe the first numbers were like 5 million mm-hmm. wow. for returning Sockeye Salmon in the Fraser. And a ton of those go to Adams, mm-hmm. this tributary slash little river that branches off of the main big river. And the first weekend we were there, nothing. We saw like three fish, which again, it's the first week. So it's like, okay, like maybe things are slow. Still, it was in super slow because mm-hmm. there was no rain. We went the first week of October. Um, it was hot and dry. It was bizarre. We went the last weekend of October. So we went for the last weekend of the festival. Way more salmon, tons mm-hmm. of fish. Fantastic. But it was also interesting because we did see like the little tributaries that were branching off of even Adams River empty. Like they were dried out. A quick aside. What happens if a salmon stream is all dried up and they can't reach it? Well, most of them will die trying. A few of them will find a different place to spawn. And that's just kind of how it goes. So, yeah, it's not great. And the year before, we'd seen salmon in those tributaries. And even the three weeks before that, there was water in there. So in those three Mm -hmm. weeks, we, we hadn't been there. It had dried up completely and fish weren't going in. Did they have the final count for the Adams River sockeye run? I don't think it's been announced yet, but I think they were, by the end of the season, they had anticipated, I think, about a million or something. Oh, that's not So the numbers had dropped from the, all the initial numbers of Fraser Sockeye had dropped once, you know, the drought continued. But, so we won't really see the impact that the drought had on a lot of those runs all throughout the coast until about four or five years whenever those are coming back. So it, it'll depend, like there'll be little like ladders of it. One year we may see, okay, this this is the sockeye from that year. And the next year, this is the Chinook or this is the, you know, it just depends, but we will see it in the future. <laughs> Does Canada have like a contingency plan if numbers start falling? Are, are hatcheries a thing in Canada? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Lots of hatcheries, which again, loaded gun question. <laughs> hatcheries... Yeah, hatcheries are one like I mean I, I when I first went to a hatchery I was like this is amazing I can mm-hmm. see fish like right there and then I learned okay there's like a little bit of controversy because I did not start out in the salmon area mm-hmm. I was like into killer whales and yeah. before that or during that when I was in university I was focusing on like invertebrates and other bony fish so salmon were like not on my radar besides being like orcas eat those yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you come here and it's like this huge thing and there's salmon everywhere and it's beautiful mm-hmm. and they're amazing and they're like the coolest fish ever. Maybe besides tuna, but yeah, they're a huge part of of the West Coast. I love tuna, which is why I got to throw that in. But um but yeah, so there are hatcheries, there's quite a few. I mean, mm-hmm. recently there actually was there's going to be a new sockeye hatchery in mm-hmm. the lower Fraser area, so in Vancouver, specifically in Coquitlam, if anyone mm-hmm. knows the area. The Coquitlam Nation actually is going to be making a sockeye salmon or starting a sockeye salmon mm-hmm. hatchery, which is a big deal. There isn't a sockeye salmon hatchery in this lower part of the mainland. Mm-hmm. I can't. I don't know if there's ones further up. I live in like the Vancouver yeah. metro-ish area, so I <laughs> I know that, but. Most other ones are focused on chum and coho, and there's some chinook, and all that kind of fun stuff. So, we do have hatcheries. So that's kind of, that is kind of like a contingency plan. It's like, well, we'll keep bolstering them and helping, but past that, I mean, historically, the Fraser River had 50 million. Oh my gosh! Sockeye salmon, and that only had a million return. That's just I think sad. 
yeah, I think it was five. I think the entire year, I think the anticipated return was around nine to eight million for the Fraser. Then it dropped to five. And then I think for Adam specifically, they were, it was then going to be like 800,000 to a million. They get a lot of salmon to the one Adams River. Yeah. But even then, if it's falling that fast, that's so concerning. Yeah. In your opinion, what is the greatest threat that ocean salmon face? Ocean salmon. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that one's hard because everything impacts their whole well, impacts yes. their whole life cycle, impacts all of them. I mean, if you're saying like in their open ocean, the mm-hmm. major threat is at that point fishing. Mm-hmm. But fishing is again like that's people eat fish. People right. like you can't. I don't want to villainize an entire mm-hmm. industry, whereas I can villainize climate change. Yes, very easily. Yes, and, <laughs> and climate change because it has effects on the open ocean as well the impact like when ocean temperatures are rising salmon don't like warm temperatures it's just not it's not not good for them so whether that's in the ocean or in rivers in rivers it's especially an issue because shallower water it's going to heat up a lot faster than the ocean Mm -hmm. and they're stuck there but the warming of the ocean that's a huge issue Mm -hmm. for pelagic roaming salmon because that stresses out their metabolic rate it they got to forage more uh more higher temperatures impact their prey so they'll see a variance in that there may not be as much prey available so it's like well they're out there and they're not getting any food but they need more food they need more food and so that's like part of the issue but up when they go to spawn if there's droughts again and they can't even access the river or their streams and tributaries then they can't even spawn and there was an incident during the drought up here where an entire run of I believe it was pink salmon it was up further north so it wasn't anywhere near me but the video was all over social media thousands of pink salmon just die like they tried to go up river the stream dried out and there's just thousands of salmon that dried out and were dead i believe it was 78 percent of them hadn't even spawned oh my gosh so they were full of eggs and sperm fun um, yeah. And they just died. Those nuts, you, you can look it up. I think it was in Bella Bella, British Columbia. So if anyone wants to like double check those numbers. But it was some ridiculous percentage of them were not able to spawn. Even if they had spawned, then all those eggs are stuck in this rotting water. So I don't even know how. I'm not sure if eggs can survive rotting water. But I know at least <laughs> rotting water, you have no oxygen. Right. It's extremely warm. They were probably wouldn't didn't fare too well. Those that were able to spawn, seeing that this like the literally the video is just cu- like the forest floor is covered in dead salmon. That's yeah. horrifying. It's, because... it, it was wild, and de- devastating. But just to see that, and apparently in other r- smaller streams and tributaries, people had seen other similar things. Not mm-hmm. to I think that mass amount, but they were noticing. Yeah, these like I don't think these ones spawned. There's like no water here. So there's a lot of anecdotal additions as well that other people were noting in their own watersheds that they were seeing similar things. But the Bella Bella one is the big mm-hmm. one that kind of, I don't want to say went viral. That feels like weird to say, but it was like all over the news and yeah. organizations all in, in BC and even like Washington people, a lot of people were concerned by that because if droughts due to climate change continue to be a thing, dried out salmon that are unable to spawn may be the future. And then yeah. that's a year maybe in four years you don't have any salmon return because yeah. they all died and the genetic diversity is lost and yeah you're you stuck lo- doing what idaho had to do which is 10 years of genetic research yeah which when you lose a whole run or you lose a whole population that we can see yeah, the, the genetic biodiversity 
and that's just more salmon that you're not getting back so that's why protecting like everyone you know save the ocean that's fantastic but yeah. freshwater habitats really need protection because yeah. freshwater doesn't get as much attention which mm-hmm. i mean yeah they don't have whales like <laughs> oh, yeah. i get it <laughs> Like you said, people care about megafauna, so it's kind of hard when you're like, yeah. um, I guess we're the megafauna for rivers yeah. at that point. Like we're the charismatic because you know we're the ones that really have started taking advantage of these like river and freshwater systems. But preserving and protecting freshwater and doing habitat restoration in your rivers and streams and riparian habitats helps young salmon Mm -hmm. which would then help the adult salmon and things like dams and habitat Mm -hmm. impediments and degradation that we've caused that's another big issue it's like climate change adds to that but Mm -hmm. what we've done to putting up massive dams all on the snake river and other rivers Mm -hmm. like the klamath the klamath dams are coming down in washington but those dams and the um elwa river dam Mm -hmm. which also came down but still those things have a huge impact and that's just we degraded their habitat. Right. And it's not like we drink fresh water or anything. <laughs> no. It's not like that's like a resource that we need to start being really mindful of because yeah. of again, climate change and human <laughs> and massive human consumption. And that's like the big thing with so much of this is like right. Human consumption. With, mm-hmm. with fishing, I have no inherent issue with fishing mm-hmm. because people eat fish and that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I personally find a lot of fish gross, which is why I don't <laughs> Me too. eat it. I think it's so nasty. I don't have like a huge moral like, oh, I won't eat fish. Right. But I, I did read something really interesting the other day in a book called American Catch. Mm-hmm. And the author just pointed out that so many people love salmon, mm-hmm. but for the U.S. and this, it's a book about the U.S. The U.S. relies so much on imported seafood. Yes. So if we want to show that we want to preserve our seafood, and it was specifically in the Bristol Bay salmon run, so like we want to show that we love our sockeye. Why don't we eat our sockeye? Yeah. Because <laughs> then it shows we would rather have sockeye than a mine. Yeah. Because if the government sees, well, our sockeye, like we're importing sockeye, or we're importing mm-hmm. some other salmon, or the Atlantic salmon is bought far more. The Atlantic farm salmon is bought way more than our own wild caught salmon. Why would we care about preserving it when we can build this mine that's going to give us billions of dollars and a quick turnaround? Yeah. And And the crazy thing to me is like if we could get salmon at least 70 percent back to its historical runs and because you have the spring, uh, summer and fall Chinook, at least in Idaho, when they die after they spawn, harvest that. That's what the First Nations people did for so many years. And we would have a domestic ability to eat wild salmon if we just let the populations come back to normal yeah. we wouldn't even have to farm it but yeah but like his comment being like we need to show that we care by eating yeah. it i was like i've never thought about it that way because <laughs> i i was like i just don't really like fish like i don't mm-hmm. love it i will eat some tuna like i like mm-hmm. a good poke bowl or you know some like tuna sushi here every now and then um I like shrimp like that kind of stuff mm-hmm. the the book just kind of like that that line being like well if you care about seafood you kind of like you should eat it and you should eat local and Mm -hmm. what's caught in your own country or area to show that you care about it because that is putting money into the industry which money speaks yes which i just found really interesting because you know i'm really not a big seafood eater yeah i'm not either a tragic issue of with fish sticks when i was eight has ruined me forever (laughs) on fish um when it comes to seafood and like the big issue with Mm -hmm. eating salmon i I think the conversation should almost 
not always, but a lot of times we focused on our consumption problem mm-hmm. and like food waste. So, yes. okay, we're fishing so much salmon. How much that's actually eaten? How much of it each week is thrown because no one bought salmon that week? Yeah. Like, or that kind of stuff. Horrifying. Oh. Yeah, things like bycatch. Like a consumption thing is a huge discussion, at least in the U.S. in like our these first world mm-hmm. colonial settler countries, is we consume so much because mm-hmm. it's just there. Yeah. Whether it's fruit out of season, if you don't think about, oh my gosh, it's, it's middle of winter and I can buy raspberries, I can buy yeah. strawberries, what's going on? And the what that means to from where it's coming from and all that kind of stuff. And that we just consume. Yes. And our food waste issue is huge. That's so sometimes so when people want to talk about fishing, I'm like, well, let's like, we fish so much because mm-hmm. our consumption rate is high, but so is our throwaway. Yeah. So why don't we bridge that gap and just start teaching about conscious consumption of all kinds of things because maybe then we'd reduce how much we need to fish because oh we're catching let's say 10 salmon and people only eat five of them and so let me throw away the other five yeah why why don't we just not fish that five and if people don't buy it then they don't buy it like for me that is an easier message to get across to people than why they should care about the salmon in the ocean it's easier it's more applicable it's it's everyone eats it's something that yeah it concerns them yeah Yeah. for sure most people have had salmon so if they're like whoa how many times have you bought salmon and not or a beef or whatever or or fruit and not eaten it and it throw throw it away after a week and embarrassingly too many times i have a thing of kale definitely forgot to eat it it's gonna get (laughs) thrown out composted it's gonna get composted but still it's like well maybe don't buy it like be aware which I say, do that's when I'm like, do a fridge audit, spend a month, keep note of what you buy, what you actually eat, what you're throwing away, like timing, like do audits like that. So you're aware of what you're doing, because that can help you personally make a choice in the future when you're grocery <laughs> shopping. Be like, you know what? I did not eat the kale last time. And just because that person on TikTok had a kale salad does not mean I'm going to have a kale salad. Kendra, thank you so much for sharing your love of salmon with us. Did something Kendra say catch your interest? If so, please check out the show notes on my website, www.wildbrood.art. I have included the articles and studies Kendra sent me if you want to go fishing for more information. Next week is the last episode of the salmon series, and I tie it all together with a big, giant, black and white bow, the orca. Kendra returns to discuss these amazing creatures, how salmon play a role in their survival, and honestly, if after all these episodes you still don't care about the salmon, perhaps saving the crown jewels of the Pacific Northwest will tug your heartstrings. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support Wild Brood's conservation mission, please visit www.wildbrood.art where you can find a plethora of creepy coffee animals for purchase. This year, 100% of all profits from the Wild Brood Art Division are going straight to the Roatan Marine Park in support of their coral restoration efforts. Thank you again for listening and stay tuned for next week's salmon installment.